I'll ask you to open your Bible up to John's Gospel, chapter 11. I want to do a character sketch of a very famous person that very little is said about. And uh, when we go to the New Testament, there's one person there that has a particular adjective attached to his name. I'm going to give you the adjective, you give me his name. Are you ready? Doubting. What do you fellas know about Doubting Thomas? Hmm? Did he doubt? Thomas is famous for something, and it's actually just one week of his life. Thomas lived a long time. Uh, he's not the oldest living apostle that we know of. Everyone believes that to be John, who wrote the last book of our New Testament. Depending on your eschatology, you'll have to decide when that was written. Uh, but John was the oldest of the apostles living. Uh, he was often believed to be the youngest of the apostles. And therefore, since he was young and he lived a long life, he outlived the rest of them. But Thomas here, uh, we don't have this in Scripture, so it's not authoritative. But Thomas, it is believed and church history says that Thomas, after uh, the persecution of Stephen, you know, in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says they were scattered abroad upon the persecution of Stephen. It is believed that Thomas from there went to what is modern day India. And that Thomas planted churches throughout the region of India. And we had a very successful ministry there. We can put Thomas there in that we can see some early church uh, archaeology. Where there was Christian churches in India. And many of them say that the Apostle Thomas was their founder. Thomas, as best we know, and this is, there again, this is not a biblical truth. This is just church tradition and history. Thomas was speared to death. Uh, his detractors got enough of him, so they assassinated him. They drug him out and, and speared him, which is a pretty quick way to go. You know, he could have been boiled in hot oil, or he could have been crucified, or crucified upside down, or tortured. So to be speared to death is essentially a pretty quick uh, killing, and as far as history tells us, that's how Thomas died. But Thomas, I've titled this message, Triumph, the, the Triumph of Thomas. Thomas, in the end of our story, is going to be victorious. And we tend to label him for that one little uh, seven days of doubt, and we tend to call him Doubting Thomas. And you can actually look it up in Webster's Dictionary, Doubting Thomas is a phrase. And it's used to describe someone who is a pessimist or continually doubting or hard to believe. Well, let me just give you some rundown on Thomas. Thomas's name occurs in the New Testament roughly 12 times. In each of those instances, it's always, well, all but about three of those instances, it shows up in a list of the disciples, the apostles. The 12 apostles that Jesus chose He's listed as one of the twelve that was sent out by the Lord to go out and do ministry. He's listed again in the book of Acts as being one of the twelve apostles in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. So we have this window of Thomas. He's called of the Lord in the early days of his ministry. Thomas is there throughout the ministry. Anywhere a list of the twelve is given, Thomas is listed in that list. And then the last time we see him is in the book of Acts. After that, it's church tradition and history as to where he went. The only time we have any record of Thomas saying anything is in John's gospel. 
If John hadn't writ his, written his gospel later than the other three, what John does is John gives us some insight into Thomas that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not. And so from what John gives us, we tend to major on Thomas's doubting and we tend to overlook the other aspects of Thomas's ministry. So if you're in chapter 11, I'd invite you to look at verse 16. Here's the first instance we have of the Apostle Thomas saying something. I'll give you the background here. The Lord Jesus Christ says it's time to go and visit Lazarus who has died. And he said, Lazarus is asleep. And the Apostle said, well, Lord, if he's sick and he's asleep, he probably needs some rest. It'll probably be all right if he's sleeping. And because Jesus said he's going to wake up Thomas. And Jesus says in verse 14, Lazarus is dead. He said, I'm not talking about taking a nap. I'm talking about a dirt nap. They've covered him up. He's dead. He's in the tomb. And then what he says in verse 15, And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. So what Jesus is saying is we're going to return to the region of Judah, Judea where Jesus was hated, where they've tried to kill him, where they've taken out plots to murder him. And he says, let's go back there and raise a man from the dead and see what happens. You know, these folks don't like Jesus because Jesus is a threat to their Phariseeism and their Sadducees and they don't have any answer for Jesus. They can't account for him. And he says, let's go back and raise Lazarus from the dead. Verse 16 tells us what Thomas said to the twelve. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. First thing I want to look at is daring Thomas. Daring Thomas. Friend, let me ask you a question. If you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead... Would you really want to go somewhere on a suicide mission? You see, I can face death because I believe in the resurrection. Uh, what's going to lay in the ground one day and rot, and the worms will crawl in, and the worms will crawl out, in my nose and out my snout. And, I, you know, if the Lord tarries, I'll completely go back to the dust in which God created Adam out of. But I believe that when the Lord Jesus Christ returns for his, the dead in Christ will rise first. I believe in the resurrection. Therefore, I'm not going to fear what Satan can do to me because uh, I have the, the Lord of the resurrection as my redeemer. Thomas, on the other hand, doesn't believe in the resurrection. Remember, he's doubting Thomas. So why is it that doubting Thomas says, let's just go back and die with Jesus? I would say that's daring Thomas. I would imagine the other disciples were like, Lord, last time we went down there, they tried to kill us. If we go back, and there's a guy that's been dead a couple of days, and it's going to take us a day to get there, he's going to be dead four days. If you raise from the dead, not somebody they could say was a sleight of hand, maybe they just passed out, maybe they weren't truly dead. If we go back and you tell them to roll the gravestone away, and his sisters say, Lord, by this time he stinketh. and you raise him from the dead, they're going to kill you, and they're going to kill us who are with you, because we're going to be accomplices in your good work, and they hate you, and they hate us. And Thomas, you know, I would say, uh, why don't you guys go get that done, and I'll catch up with you. 
And maybe I'd stand up on the hillside and look down at that graveyard and just see how the outcome turned out. You say, oh, Brother Harold, they ain't going to kill him. I beg your pardon, sir. Look at verse 53. And from that day forth they took counsel together to put him to death. Not only was Thomas daring Thomas, he was also discerning Thomas. Nobody else was saying we're going to go on a suicide mission, but Thomas was. Thomas had the discernment to know the world hates Christ, and if we keep following him, they're going to kill him and they're going to kill us. And ultimately that came true, just not in Bethany at the resurrection of Lazarus. It came true in modern day India at the hands of a spear. Thomas was not afraid of death. Thomas was loyal even without the promise of the resurrection. I would say if they didn't record his doubt in the upper room, we would call churches Apostle Thomas Baptist Church. There's a little church house by my driveway called St. Matthew's Baptist Church. I've seen St. John Baptist Church. I seldom see a St. Thomas. I doubt we shall see one anytime soon. But if doubting Thomas was not recorded, we'd just have daring Thomas and discerning Thomas. And then we would say, boy, this Thomas, man, there's a guy that was plugged in and fearless, not doubting Thomas. The next time that we see Thomas, any questions about daring Thomas? All right, the next time we see Thomas, he's at a loss for instruction. I call him deficient Thomas. Chapter 14 of John's Gospel. We have deficient Thomas. And the Lord is telling them, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And he gives us this real famous passage, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. We know all that, right? He goes on to say in verse 4, Whether ye go, whether I go, ye know, and the way ye know. He said, you know where I'm going, and you know how to get there. That's the Harold Smith paraphrase. You know where I'm going, you know how to get there. Jesus has told them where he's going, and he's told them how to get there. But one thing I've learned as a Baptist preacher, telling people don't mean they get it. You can tell them, and they'll nod their head and smile at you. And then when you ask them about it, I've never heard that. You've never mentioned that before. I'm like, I've mentioned it 9,000 times. I've preached entire series on this. No, you haven't. Jesus has said, I'm going to my father's house. I'm going to heaven. And the way to get there is in me. And what does Thomas say? Here's Thomas. The second time he appears in scripture in verse 5, he's deficient. But look at what he says. Then... Or it says, Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whether thou goest, and how can we know the way? This is a legitimate question. Thomas doesn't know where Jesus is going, and Thomas doesn't know how to get there. You say, Brother Harold, why didn't he know where Jesus is going? Lazarus, not Lazarus of Bethany that Jesus had resurrected, but the poor Lazarus that the dogs licked his wounds and he ate the crumbs of the rich man's table. You remember that, Lazarus? Not a parable, but a real person. That Lazarus, when he died, he did not go to heaven, did he? He went to Abraham's bosom. He went to Abraham's bosom. 
Now, what is Abraham's bosom? This is the place where believers in God, that he would provide a way of redemption, went to await their Redeemer. When Jesus Christ came and died and rose from the grave, the Bible says he led the captives captive. I preached a sermon one time called Abraham's Empty Belly. When Jesus rose from the grave, he went to heaven and entered the heavens, the Holy of Holies, the tabernacle of God in heaven, not built by hands, not the tabernacle on earth covered with a sheet, but a tabernacle in heaven covered with the Shinnina glory of God. Jesus Christ entered into that tabernacle with his own blood and made atonement for all who have believed and will believe. So everybody all the way back to the first person that died, righteous Abel, Adam, Seth, Eve, every believer in that line, all the way up to the thief on the cross where Jesus says, Today ye shall be with me in paradise. Uses the word paradise. When Jesus goes in there and offers his blood for all of these Old Testament believers, they're no longer in the covenant of Abraham. They are now under the New Testament or the new covenant of the blood of Jesus Christ. No longer being redeemed by the blood of bulls and goats, but now being redeemed, as the writer of Hebrews says, by a more excellent sacrifice. I say all that to say, These men understood the covenant of Abraham from their youth. They had believed, Father Abraham had many sons and I'm one of them. I'm one of the twelve, circumcised on the eighth day. And I believe in the uh, sacrifice of the priesthood and the tabernacle to be sufficient to roll my sins back another year. Jesus said, when I get done with this, there ain't going to be any more sacrifices. It's one and done once I get on the cross. So they don't understand this concept. So Thomas says a really good question. Lord, if we don't know where you're going, how are we going to know the way? Put yourself in Thomas's shoes. You ready? Your child calls and says, come pick me up and hangs up. But doesn't tell you if she's eating lunch, eating supper, at a friend's house, at school, or dance practice. You're just going to get in your car and start driving? Somewhere, we'll spot her. She's out here. We're just going to keep circling till we find her. That's not how we look for Christ. We don't just grope in darkness looking for Christ. He says, if I don't know where you're going, how can I know how to get there? He doesn't understand this. Jesus has just told him, in my Father's house are many mansions. Now, I'm going to... I'm can I be honest? Nobody here but us tonight, right? Christians today don't know where Jesus is. You know what we sing? I've got a mansion on a hilltop. Do you really think heaven looks like eastern Kentucky? And everybody has a black fence horse farm and a mansion on a hilltop. Does it look like something J.R. Ewing would live in on the TV show Dallas? But that's what we sing. I'm satisfied with a little cabin down here below because I'm going to a 40-acre spread in heaven. Today's Christian doesn't understand the mansion any better than Thomas did. And Thomas didn't say, I don't understand. He said, we don't understand. 
Thomas was deficient. But before you beat him up, many Christians today don't understand. They think they're going to heaven to play golf. I'll get up there and get them platinum clubs and them gold golf balls and I'll play on that, that, that green where we all hit a perfect part. No, you're not. When I get up there, I'm going to get a chew at the back and a pocket knife and I'm going to sit on the front porch of heaven and whittle with Grandpa. No, you're not. Grandpa's occupied with the worship of his Redeemer. And if you're going, that's where you'll be too. So don't beat Thomas up for saying, we don't know where heaven is, and we, if we don't know where it is, we don't know how to get there. Thomas here is deficient. But let's, let's be realistic. There's 12 apostles in this text. Thomas is the only one that says, we don't know. Everybody else does what Baptists do and said, amen, amen, Jesus. Any questions? No. We struggle at asking questions, don't we? You ever go to the doctor? Any questions? No, I'm good. I don't want you poking around looking for something on me. I'm good. Thomas is deficient. But friend, give Thomas credit. He's willing to admit to the Lord Jesus Christ when none of the other apostles would. Hey, I don't know where you're going, but I don't know how to get there. If Thomas hadn't have asked that question, you wouldn't have this verse in your Bible. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by Oh, you've heard that one before? That's a conversation between the person you call doubting Thomas and Jesus Christ. You quote what Christ said, but you don't give Thomas the credit for asking the tough questions and getting the answers. Isn't that what them old news shows used to say? Asking the tough questions. Oh, I'm going to listen to them. Now they just throw softballs at him. Thomas, if he were a journalist, he would have asked the tough questions. He's deficient. He wants the answers. Therefore, he asks, and he doesn't ask dumb questions. Uh, Peter's the one that does that. I think it was old mountain preacher Vance Havner that said, the apostle Peter's the most American apostle of them all. He wants to pull Jesus aside and tell him what he's going to do and not going to do. You're not going to take you tonight. I got my sword on me. Put your sword away, Peter. Let me put this guy's ear back on. Friend, listen, Thomas asked a legitimate question. He has a sincere, he wants to know. I mean, after all, he knows he's on a suicide mission. Why not figure out where you're going to end up? All right, finally, the next time he appears is in chapter 20 in an upper room, a day late and a dollar short. John's Gospel, chapter 20, we'll look at verses 24 down through 29. Look at these slowly. Uh, I'll give you the, the background here in the preceding verses. They're all in the upper room. The door's locked. They're afraid the Jews are going to come and arrest them. Crucify them just like Jesus was crucified. Passover's over. Jesus is risen. Uh, Peter has seen him. John and Peter have seen the, the empty tomb. The women who came to the... Uh, tomb saw the angel angels and were told that it was not there and to go and tell his uh, disciples Mary Magdalene seen him in the garden uh, near the tomb Jesus has been seen 
that night, even though Jesus has been seen and he's resurrected, they're all still scared. They're all still in an upstairs room somewhere with the door locked. And right there in the middle of them, Jesus just shows up without knocking or opening a door, just materializes in the middle of them and says, Peace be unto you. That's the Hebrew way of saying, How y'all doing? Now listen. When they look at him, they don't say, My Lord and my God. They say, It's a ghost. And he says, no, I'm real, I'm not a ghost. And they're like, no, you're a spirit. And he's like, bring me something to eat. So they bring him a piece of fish and a honeycomb. Now, if you've ever seen Casper the Friendly Ghost, when the kids were drinking their milk, Casper wanted to drink his milk. But when Casper poured the milk into his mouth, the milk hit the floor because Casper's a ghost. Jesus was eating the fish. Chewing it up and swallowing it because he had a real body. That was his physical body that was on the cross that didn't rot in the grave. That came back to life after he'd been dead three days. This Jesus Christ was eating fish and, and eating a honeycomb and talking to them. And then after they see him eat fish, after they see him eat the honeycomb, after he says, look, look at, here, look at my hands, look at my side, it's me. Then they're like, okay, maybe. They're still spooked. And he knows they're still spooked. And he says, receive ye the Spirit. And he breathes on them and the Holy Spirit of God literally comes out of Jesus Christ and enters into them. Now I think they were already saved because I think Peter's already made a profession of faith and Jesus said, blessed art thou Simon Barjona for flesh and blood hath not revealed it to thee but my Father which is in heaven. With the mouth confession is made to righteousness. Peter made that confession in Matthew chapter 16, I think. Okay? So Peter makes a confession of faith. Christ says, that's from God. I believe that's how we're saved, by confession. And I don't believe it's from us. I believe it's God that enables us to do it. So I think Peter's saved. What Peter is receiving in the upper room is the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit. You're going to find these apostles get filled over and over and over again. The day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes, this time not in the breath of Christ, but in cloven tongues of fire. When they get beaten and thrown into prison in Acts chapter 5, it says in Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. He's the down payment, the pledge, the stamp of God that you belong to Him, but you leak. And you don't always have the full power of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you try to do things in your own strength and you fail and you fall short. Sometimes you lack wisdom. And this is why the Bible says, If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth liberally and abradeth not. That wisdom comes in the person of the Holy Spirit. In that upper room, Jesus breathes on these ten. Judas is dead. Thomas is gone. Breathes on him. These ten now have a fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit. They've been powered up. It doesn't last long. Peter finally gets started doubting again and says, Hey, look, I'm going back fishing. Jesus has to show up on the lake shore and say, You caught anything? Nope. Huh, I wonder why. <laughs> I made you fishers of men. You're no longer fishers of fish. So they dropped their nets on the other side and they came to the shore and he already had the fish cooked. He's like, Look, guys, I'm feeding you from now on out. 
The fishing days are over. Peter needed another filling of the Holy Spirit. I say all that, friend, to say this. In that setting, Thomas is not there. Verse 24. Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Didymus means twin. Thomas was a twin. Some people have said Thomas was Jesus' twin. I'm like, nope. Holy Spirit overshadowed a virgin Mary. She had not known a man. The only baby in her womb is the one God put in there, and he ain't making no twins. Well, somebody said, well, it was Jesus' lookalike. Listen to me. Before fertility drugs, before prenatal vitamins, before ultrasounds, before prenatal care, let me ask you how common twins were. Before epidurals. When women had to just go out in the woods with a stick and another lady and come back with kids, how common were twins? How many twins do you know of in Scripture up to this point? Jacob and Esau. Remember, what in the world's wrong with my pregnancy? Well, there's two in there. That's rare. I don't think Thomas looks like Jesus. I know he's not Jesus' twin. I think he's called the twin because twins were uncommon and they didn't have last names. So the reason, the way you distinguish Thomas from all other Thomases is, oh, the twin, that Thomas. Make sense? Not a lot of twins running around. Thomas, the twin, wasn't there. He didn't see the honeycomb and the fish demonstration. He didn't receive the Spirit. Verse 25. And the other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. My stars. This is where we get doubting Thomas. I will not believe unless I see him, unless I touch him. Why do you call him doubting Thomas? I would say Peter's doubting Peter. Three days ago, they said, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? No, it's not me, I'm from Buffalo. Another person walked up, say, wait a minute. You're one of his disciples. I've seen you at his rallies. He has not. It's not me. I'm not from around here. A third person comes up. Seems to me Peter's awful doubtful three days ago. Say, uh, I know you're one of his disciples because you've got a Galilean accent. You're a fisherman from Galilee. And he cusses Jesus. He says, I don't know that blankety blank. I don't know what you're talking about. And he leaves. I would say Peter's doubting Peter. When they get news that he rose from the grave, John and Peter jump up and take off running. Why didn't they say, that's what he said he was going to do? I knew it. I put $50 on the resurrection. I'm getting paid on this thing. Why didn't they all go bet on it? The Pharisees said, look, this guy said he's going to rise from the dead. We need to go put guards up there and seal the tomb so his disciples don't steal his body and make that happen. They knew he had planned to resurrect. He told them he was coming back. Why did John and Peter run to the tomb? John outran him. I've just never been in that big of a hurry to get to the graveyard. 
John outran him. Why? I'd say John doubted the resurrection. Mary Magdalene got a word from an angel sitting on top of the rock that he wasn't there. Mary Magdalene went back. What was she looking for? I think she had a little doubt and problem herself. But we call Thomas doubting Thomas. I think that's unfair. The other ten saw him. The other ten received the spirit. The other ten got the invitation to handle him. And we still call Thomas doubting Thomas. They were all doubting. When he walked in the room, they said, it's a ghost. Let me give you a better title for doubting Thomas. And I know I'm just one guy. I'm a hillbilly preacher in the middle of nowhere. Nobody knows me and nobody will remember me. But you can have a little influence on the people you know. Let's quit calling him doubting Thomas and let's call him dark Thomas. Dark Thomas. Everything's dark. Everything's dreary. Everything's a glass half empty Thomas. Let's just go die with him. Lord, I don't know where you're going. How can I know how to get there? I don't believe he came back. Thomas is not so much doubting. They were all in doubt. Thomas is dark. When Thomas gets good news, he goes, Oh, no, I'm not falling for that. He's dark Thomas, not doubting Thomas. But he says, Look, except I shall see the prince in his hand. And put my finger on there. He said, I don't want to look at him. It's almost like he heard, he's heard of Hollywood makeup artists. He wants to pull back the little hole and see if he can look through it. That's all the way through. The Greek here says, except I thrust my hand into his side. I got no intentions or desires of reaching up in anybody's ribcage. I'm a hunter. That's part of it. You got to clean that animal before you bring him home. You know what part I look forward to the least? Reaching up in the rib cage. You know what Dark Thomas said? Lest I reach my hand up in there and feel. Thrust, he said. He's not talking about like touch it. No, he literally says, look, unless I can stick my hand, I saw the spear. I'm not falling for no no lookalike. I'm a twin. Except I handle him with my hands. I don't believe. Notice what he said at the end of verse 25. I will not believe. That's a pretty definitive statement if you ask me. Well, look at verse 27. And after eight days again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Eight days. This is a Sunday night. Next Sunday night. People have beaten up Thomas for not being there for the Sunday night prayer meeting. Well, if Thomas would have been in church like he should have been. That's not a church. It's an upper room full of cowards. If that's a church, I don't want to join it. It's not a church. How do you know that Thomas's mother didn't fall and he had to go get her in a nursing home? How do you know they didn't send him down to the 7-Eleven get another two liter of Dr. Pepper? You don't know where Thomas was. You're implying bad motives that he weren't there. Thomas should have been here. Thomas should have been here. Nobody said you should have been here. They all said you missed it. Eight days later, Sunday night, they're all still together. Let's just pause for a moment. The Bible covers eight days in between two verses. What do you think these... Ten guys said to Thomas for eight days. 
You think they said, well, there's just no convincing dark Thomas. There's no need talking. No, I bet they were like Thomas. Would 10 of your best friends lie to you about this? And Thomas said, look, I don't care. I knew he was going to die all along. I don't care. I don't get it. I mean, this went on and went on and went on. And eight days later, on the, sun, the next Sunday evening, Jesus Christ shows up and Thomas is there. Look at what Jesus says. He says, how are y'all doing? Verse 27. Then he says to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless but believing. In verse 27, Jesus says to Thomas, verbatim, back to him in the same words, Thomas, let me see your finger. Remember, Thomas didn't want to look. He wanted to put his finger in there. Jesus didn't say, hey, Thomas, look. He said, hey, Thomas, stick your hand out. Boy, isn't that always scary when someone says, here, stick your hand out. You're like, no. And they're holding their hand closed. Here, come on, stick your hand. No, I'm not doing that. Thomas said, lest I stick my finger in there. Jesus said, stick your finger in. It's almost like Jesus, though he wasn't in the room, heard what was said in the room. It's almost like Jesus, even though he wasn't there, he remembered word for word what Thomas said because he used the same word for Hebrew and the, the Greek for finger. He uses the same word for hand in the Greek for hand. He uses the same word for thrust. Thomas, was you wanting to reach into my ribcage? Pulls his, pulls his garment up and says, looky there, stick your hand in there. He, now Mary tried to hug him. He said, hey woman, don't hang on to me. Thomas, on the other hand, he said, reach up in there and check my heart. I'm here to tell you, Jesus showed up with a purpose that Sunday night. And the purpose was Thomas. He showed up and said, how are y'all? Hey, Thomas, we have some business to Verse 28, declaring Thomas. The last time Thomas speaks. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. That is the declaration or the declaring Thomas. Thomas gives him a twofold declaration. Lord and God. He's my King and my Savior. And he must be both. We got a movement circling around through Baptist churches these days that says that you can have Jesus as Savior and decide whether you want to make Him Lord or not later. These people all say this. This is the teaching of Jack Hiles out of Hammond, Indiana. He's been dead. His son-in-law took over his church. He went to prison for uh, uh, underage girls. He's been kicked out. The church has Hiles Anderson Bible College. They still turn out Bible preachers today. And here's their doctrine. You simply ask Jesus to come into your heart. You don't make him Lord. That's works. You don't serve him as Lord. That's works. You just get saved by grace. You just simply take him by faith. That's fine. That's fair. But you're leaving out half of it. You confess with your mouth, not Jesus Christ. You confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
If you're not confessing Him as Lord, you're doing what the demons did. They believe in one God and shudder, but they don't submit or serve Him. They flee from Him and they oppose Him and they rebel against Him. And they're going to do that until He consigns them all in an eternity in hell. My eschatology is this. There's a thousand year reign of Christ and at the end of the thousand years the devil's turned loose again. You may think that's pictorial and not literal and that's fine too. But either way, what happened in your picture, your allegory or my literalness? As soon as Satan's turned loose, he didn't say, My Lord and my God. He's turned loose and he said, Hey, all y'all follow me. He knows Jesus is God, but he won't submit to his lordship. A third of the angels in heaven knew that he was God, but they wouldn't submit to his lordship. The majority of the earth know that he's God, but they won't submit to his lordship. Thomas didn't touch his finger. Thomas didn't stick his hand in his side. Thomas seen what he said he wanted to handle, and he said, I don't need to handle it. My Lord, my God. If you don't say that, if he would have just said, my God, Jesus would have said, no, no, come look a little closer. I'm not just God, I'm your Lord. I'm your master. Thomas went to India and died at the point of a spear, serving his Lord and God. All right, let's look at the distinguished testimony. Verse 29. My Lord and my God, verse 29, Jesus says unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. The distinguished testimony is greater than Thomas's. He says, Thomas, you believe because you've seen me. Greater are those that believe that don't see me. Well, why is that greater? Have you ever wished Jesus would show up? Yeah. I don't mean at the end times. You know, John says, even so come Lord Jesus. We all want him to return. But have you ever just wished like somebody that don't believe in him? I don't believe in that Jesus fairy tale stuff. Don't you just wish Jesus would show up like he did to Saul of Tarsus and strike him blind? Who art thou, Lord? I'm Saul whom you persecute. We got to talk. Peace be unto you. Hey, Thomas, we need to talk. How many times have you wished Jesus would come back today to some particular Christian that's rebelling against him or some lost person that refuses to believe in him and say, you, sir, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. I bled and died on the cross. Look up here, we're talking. Jesus said it's the greater testimony that someone would believe on me and not see me. Why? Because our testimony is not the testimony of sight. Our testimony is the testimony of faith. We believe on him whom we have not seen. Christian, do you realize what you're doing? You're going to die and face creator God. And you're going to do it on the sole testimony of a carpenter who died as a criminal 2,000 years ago. That's the most preposterous story. How can you be so certain? I believe it. I'm convinced of it. Have you seen him? No. Did you die and go to heaven for 30 seconds? No. I didn't die and go to heaven for 3 seconds. The greater testimony is not the kid that said he went to heaven and the Holy Ghost had blue teeth. If the Holy Ghost has teeth, we have problems. He's the ghost. 
We don't need the testimony of one that died and rose again. The rich man in hell said, send Lazarus back and warn my brothers. And Abraham said, they've got Moses and the prophets. If they won't hear them, Lazarus coming back ain't going to change their mind. You say, oh, but Brother Harold, if Jesus came back, listen to me. Jesus was here and they didn't believe in him. When it was all said and done, he had 11 men locked away in an upper room. This is the guy that fed 5,000 men at one time with a schoolboy sack lunch. This is the guy that raised dead Lazarus after four days, walked on water, rebuked storms, raised dead people, cured leprosy, made blind people see, mute people talk, and deaf people hear. He straightened out arms that were born deformed of grown men. Told lame people to get up and carry their bed, go find a job. How did these guys see all that, see an empty tomb, see transformed disciples that died in the same manner because of what they believed and they still won't believe in Jesus? I'm here to tell you the greater testimony to the grace of God is that he convinces us who have not seen him to die trusting in him and to, to receive everything that Thomas had by faith and not by sight. That's the distinguished testimony of the Christian today. When someone starts telling me Jesus showed up at the foot of their bed and gave them some special message, I'm like, no, the greater testimony is this. I believe a 2,000-year-old book. Joseph Smith's supposed to have angels show up and talk at the foot of his bed. Look what that got. It's the Mormons. Now we've got young kids riding around on bicycles. We don't need any more of that. We need more of this. We don't need your other book. We don't need your other revelation. We don't need some new word from God. We need to get acquainted with the old word. The distinguished testimony is that we believe having not seen. Well, we've got to hurry up here. Okay. Daring Thomas, deficient Thomas, doubting Thomas, declaring Thomas. The distinguished testimony. Not Thomas. Really, none of the twelve. Five hundred people at one time saw Jesus resurrected. We have a testimony greater than their 500. We believe on him whom we have not seen. So how do we go from pessimist to preacher? Thomas was triumphant. I think there's seven things we can take away from this story and then we'll close. Have you ever just drudged along? You ever just drudged along? You ever been like Thomas? Well, let's just go down there and die. Well, it's cold out. You want to go to church? I guess we ought to get cleaned up and study the Bible tonight. You're just as bad as Thomas. You're just as pessimistic as Thomas is. Well, the world's not getting any better. I just don't even do any good to preach anymore. Wrong. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Well, I just, you know, good churches are hard to find. You're right, but they exist. Christians are scarce. You're right, but they exist. The Lord's not leaving us here. He said, I'll always have my church on the earth. On this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. As long as we're gathered here, we're victorious. The Lord is still ruling and reigning here through us. Don't drudge along like Thomas. You ever lacked answers? 
I've had questions that I was too embarrassed to ask God. You? I've wanted to ask him why, but I knew I didn't have any right to ask him why. doesn't say I didn't have the right to ask him why. It just says I'm not to expect an answer. I'm free to ask. If you lack anything, ask the Lord. If you lack knowledge, if you lack instruction, here's the thing. Just don't demand that God answer your question. You say, well, I think God ought to answer. If he's God, he ought to answer our question. Do you answer all your kids' questions? No, after a while you probably said this, because I said so. No, we're not there yet. I'll tell you when we get there. If that's how childish your children are to you, how childish are you in the sight of God? If you have questions, Lord, I don't know where you are. How do I get there? Tell him. He loves to hear us pray. You have not because you ask not. Thomas here said, Lord, we can't go where you are. We don't know where you're going. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. We got that instruction from one guy who had some questions and he spoke up in front of the rest and asked. Do you know anybody that refuses to believe? Got anybody you've shared the gospel with a few times? They're pretty much set in their ways. I, just, I have no interest in your Jesus Christ. I have no interest in your church, your gospel, your faith. That's all a fairy tale. Well, I've done all I can do. There's nothing else that can be done here. Thomas's exhibit A that God's in the mind-changing business. He said, Thomas, you saw and believed, but guess what? I'm going to convince the rest of these non-believers without showing myself. I'm going to convince them how. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God, word of Christ. You continue to preach the gospel. You continue to sow seeds. Even those that say in verse 25, I will not believe. Just tell God what you're not going to do and see if he gets involved. Number four, God hears exactly what you say. He knows exactly what you think. You remember in verse 27 where Jesus showed up and said, let me see your finger. Here, Thomas, stick your hand in here. Jesus didn't come back and go, hey, Thomas, look up here. He said, hey, Thomas, stick your finger in here. Thrust your hand in here. What Jesus is demonstrating is that he heard everything that came out of Thomas's mouth and held him accountable to it. If he did that for Thomas, what do you think he's doing for Harold Smith? The exact same thing. Did you ever sing that song as a child? Oh, be careful little mouth what you say. For the father up above is looking down in love. Be careful little mouth what you say. We need to be reminded of that sometimes. You know, I tend to talk tough when it's just me. I tend to say what I think when it's just me in the truck. And you're driving in front of me. Too slow. 
one tire on the other side of the yellow line. Well, just me in here, correction, it's you and Christ. And he hears every word that comes out of your mouth. What you get comfortable saying in private is what you'll eventually let slip out in public. I always remember that lady that called me up one morning. I was working night shift at the time. She called me up. I could sleep through the phone ringing, but it must have rang seven, eight calls in a row. Answer machine, kick on. Call me, answer machine, kick on. Finally, I woke up. I'm like, this must be important. I stumbled into the kitchen. I answered the phone. Hello? Harold? Yes? Harold Smith? Yes? Let me tell you something. And then it was like I was talking to my old drill sergeant in the military. This lady gave me the awfulest cussing, called me every name that you could possibly string together. Words, I'd been in the military, words I'd never heard. And said, how do you think you're going to get out of paying this child support? You think you can run off to Arkansas and not pay for these kids? And I said, ma'am, I'm 21 years old, been married a year, and we don't have any children. Oh, I'm so sorry. Sir, I must have had the wrong Harold Smith. I'm trying to locate him. And I said, ma'am, I'm not him. She said, I don't normally talk that way. <laughs> and I said, there's another Harold Smith that's older than me that lives at Mountainburg. That's the blankety blank I'm looking for. And she hung up. <laughs> the Lord hears what you say in private. Heard what Thomas said verbatim. Use the same words back on him. Number five. Who sought out Thomas here? Thomas made his declaration, I'm not going to believe. Did Jesus say I'll be back in eight days and deal with Thomas then? Nope. Jesus could have showed up when Thomas was at the 7-Eleven getting an orange slushie. Jesus showed up when Thomas was in the room and said, Hi guys, hey Thomas, first order of business. First thing out of Jesus' mouth on the second arrival was Thomas. Who sought out Thomas? Who sought out Jesus? Was Thomas out there going, Lord, if you're real, show me. He said, no, I'm not believing. I'm not believing. I don't believe it. Who convinced Thomas? Did, did the ten other apostles convince Thomas? They had eight days. When Jesus showed up, did Thomas go, Boy, I tell you what, I already believed. I knew you was coming this time. I'm ready for you. No. You're not going to convince anybody. You can't convince anybody. If somebody could convince somebody, it would be the ten closest friends of Thomas who he had lived with for three straight years, saw Jesus walk on water, raise dead people, do all the miracles. If anybody could have said, Thomas, look, it's us. Thomas couldn't be convinced by them. Jesus Christ shows up, Thomas believes. How does that happen today? We tell people Jesus rose from the grave. The Holy Spirit convinces them to believe. Not the preacher. 
You say, well, what's the practical application of that? I don't have to dim the lights, turn the heat up, and slant the church forward to get you to respond to the gospel. If Jesus Christ gets a hold of you, you'll run down the aisle saying what they said on the day of Pentecost, God be merciful to me, a sinner. You'll stop the preaching and say, Peter, time out. What must we do to be saved? We need to be sharing the gospel with the expectation that the Holy Spirit does what He said He's going to do and convince people that Jesus Christ is who He said He was and let God work out the details. Number six, Lordship is the only ship. The only ship that will land you in heaven is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If you will not bow to the Lordship of Jesus Christ now, you will not be in heaven worshiping with Him Throughout eternity. We admit and confess that he is Lord. He's king of kings. He's Lord of lords. He's coming back. He's purchased us. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. Number seven. He's made no promise to show up. I remember as a kid. Asking God. It's like, Lord, if you want me to do this, make that picture shift over. And if you don't want me to do it, leave the picture where it's at. And I'd pray, I'd look at the picture, and I'd be like, maybe he just didn't hear me, you know. Maybe, he's, maybe he wants to move the picture, and I didn't ask right, you know. So, okay, Lord, let a car come down our road the next five minutes. That's more believable. Now, I can't, that, that can't be trusted. Jesus Christ has never promised to show up and say, Hey, look, you, you don't believe me? Here I am. He's not the subject of our challenge. Oh, William Jennings Bryant, he was debating an uh, atheist years and years ago. And the atheist had five minutes in the debate. And he walked up on the platform and he said, God... If you're real, I defy you. He mocked God and cussed God. And he said, if you're real, strike me dead. For five minutes, he had his stopwatch out. Going, God, if you're real and you're so powerful and this is your world, you've got four minutes. And he cussed and mocked God, defied God, mocked Christians. Said, your God's not real. At the end of five minutes, he sat down and said, your God's not real. William Jennings Bryant got up and said, Isn't our God patient? Isn't our God long-suffering and merciful? He's not bound to operate according to our wants and wishes. But everything he does is right and just and good. He hasn't promised to show up and reveal himself to you in a physical way. But he's promised to save all those who will believe. And the belief is in his lordship. That's what needs to be determined. Is he your Lord? Do you have a relationship with him? Where you're in submission to him and he's an authority over your life and you're living your life according to his will and his word. And if you're doing that, then that, that's demonstrating that you have faith in the carpenter who died as a criminal on a cross. If you're doing that, you're walking in the reassurance you have the way, the truth. You will have the life. That's what it looks like. That's what we learn from a guy they call Doubting Thomas.